Kidlet. Hello, writers. I'm Alexis. And I'm Brittany. Thank you for joining our community, centered around growth and discovery in the world of Kidlet. Jennifer A. Nielsen is a name spoken often in middle school and high schools around the USA. She is known for her fantasy books, such as those in the series The False Prince and The Mark of the Thief, as well as through her historical fiction works, such as A Night Divided, Words on Fire, and Iceberg. Her achievements include the Sydney Taylor Notable Book Award for her historical fiction novel, Resistance, multiple Whitney Awards, and even the Outstanding Achievement Award in 2023. Her books have also won numerous state awards. Her newest novel, Iceberg, is a middle grade historical fiction about Hazel Rothbury, a young stowaway on the Titanic, and it's a thrilling story of survival. Our Read to Write Kidlet book club recently read Iceberg, and we are so excited to talk with Jennifer about writing that book and writing in general. So welcome, Jennifer. Can you introduce yourself and give us a short summary of Iceberg? Well, thank you both of you very much for having me here. It's a great honor, and I'm I'm thrilled to be part of this uh, wonderful podcast, Iceberg, uh, because it is a Titanic story. It has a very predictable uh, sort of climactic moment, which is that ship will hit an iceberg and it will go down. However, a lot of the journey on the way is what happens to Hazel and a friend from first class, Sylvia, and a young porter named Charlie. And each of their separate journeys on this ship as, as their stories come together and each of them hoping to survive. It was an exciting book to read. So let's start right from the beginning. Once you had your initial idea to write Iceberg, how did you go about plotting? Uh, one of the things that I was really... Uh, considering uh, quite a bit with Iceberg is that it is a known ending. And yet there's so much uh, groundwork that needs to be laid uh, for readers to really understand and put into context uh, a full understanding of why that ship went down. And so there was a lot of information I wanted to give to the reader before that uh, tragic Sunday night, but I don't want to just feed information. So I needed a format for Hazel to begin to learn about the ship, which is why she becomes uh, this curious person and why she wants to write about the Titanic and has such a desperate need. Uh, because of course, if she's able to sell a news article that uh, would establish her as a journalist and she hopes would keep her out of the workhouses in New York. I needed a way to give her that information, but I also wanted it to continue to be exciting and suspenseful even before that. And so I wanted to introduce a mystery element and uh, so that you knew something is not right in the people that Hazel is meeting, apart even from what's happening on the ship. Yeah, I really liked having your other plot lines. Um, I almost forgot sometimes that the ending would be what it, I mean, I knew what was going to happen, but there were other things that you're reading forward to, which I really like how you wove all that together. Thank you. So you write um, fantasy and historical fiction, and both of those, you know, have their challenges. I'm curious, is it 
easier or more challenging to know, you know, that you're going to have this major event ahead of time? No, because I mean, even if I were plotting a fantasy novel where the only limit is my imagination, I'm still writing to a very hopefully exciting and climactic sort of a moment. Uh, the only difference between that and Titanic is Titanic is so well known by others. But to me, it's the same process. I'm still trying to funnel everything to that inevitable uh, moment where the character has to either win or lose. So my process doesn't change that much, whether the reader knows what's coming or not. It's still the same buildup of suspense along the way. And you would say that you were using the the plotline of the gambling couple to really kind of add that extra element of suspense. Would you consider that a subplot? I mean, it's sort of like a if if you took like an A plot, which is Hazel on the Titanic learning about it, uh, the Mollisons, this this other couple on board would be the B plot. And in any A plot, B plot story, the stories are going to weave together in and out at times, but they're also functioning on their own separate arcs. And so as, as Hazel is learning more about them and mistrusting them and realizing their secrets they are hiding and they might be very dangerous, that is rising up to a climax a little sooner than what the Titanic itself is. And so you have really two uh, climactic moments, but at the end, they've got to converge. And, and you do see that in the final minutes before the ship goes down, how these two plot lines will come together. And so they're, they're separate plots, but they will have to intermingle. And we talked about many people know about the Titanic and what its ultimate fate was. But we are writing for middle grade readers who in all likelihood might not, or they might know what happens to the Titanic. There could be a middle grade reader who has maybe heard of it, but doesn't quite know what will happen. How did that affect the way you went about this novel? There's always, because it is for a middle grade audience, I know that I am writing exactly, as you say, for a very wide range. There are there are the occasional middle grade students who are like, okay, wait, what? Like this happened? And so it's it's incumbent upon me as the author to make sure I have laid the proper groundwork and not make assumptions as as to, you know, to have any expectations. And so when when Hazel gets on board, of course, there has to be a moment where she takes in the majesty of the Titanic so that the reader who has no visual for it mm -hmm. can say, OK, I get this was a very large, a very grand ship. And I have to uh, explain the difference in the classes of, you know, first class, second class, third class and how strict uh, those uh, those differences were for somebody who may not have realized that it wasn't just everybody mingling together in in one group and and that's very important at the same time in my experience middle grade students they are titanic experts <laughs> oh my goodness the things yeah. that they know like when I'm talking to them and their hands will go up in the air with detailed trivia that they want to share with me they're like you know uh Jennifer Nielsen do you know how many rivets were um put into 
the Titanic's hole up in Belfast where the ship was built. And I will be like, um, how many? And they're like, they know. And then they'll tell me about the quality of the steel in the rivets. And if I am not right there with them, they'll be like, I, I thought you knew about the Titanic, right? Because you don't know how many rivets there were. You don't know how many portholes there were. You're an amateur. Yeah. And so uh, I always respect the fact that middle grade readers, um, if they know about the Titanic, they probably know a lot about the Titanic. And it's fascinating to talk to kids who have studied it. I really love hearing that too, because both... Um... Alexis is currently teaching, but I used to teach and I often feel that way that our middle grade readers know so much. They are way more savvy than some people would give them credit for being a middle grade reader. And um, they know a lot. And they're very, they're very with it on lots of different things. So I love to hear that from you. They are. But at the same time, I try to challenge them. Right. So yeah. I'll, I'll talk about and I'll just say, you know, I know you know a lot about it, but, you know, research is important. So how about this? And I tell them, could we have saved nearly everybody on board if we had done one simple thing to turn off the lights? And as soon as I say that, kids will sit up because they, they are, their minds are racing mm -hmm. to connect how turning off the lights might have saved nearly everybody on board. And that is when we really get to have fun with young readers. The good problem solving, critical thinking there. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, all the facts and things. And I really like how you were able to, you did not you mentioned earlier about just dumping everything. So you were you had um, a lot of sprinklings of facts about the Titanic and how you kind of wove all that together. And so I'm just curious, do you have a strategy for not just fact dumping or, you know, you pulling in facts and just weaving them in naturally in your writing? Yeah. Yeah, if you see any any novel where there's a lot of information that has to come out, my my strategy is you don't tell the reader anything more than you need to tell them right in that moment. So I know that on Sunday afternoon, they canceled a lifeboat drill. All right. And that's a really important thing to know is that there had been uh, only hours before they hit the iceberg, there had been an intention to do a lifeboat drill. Now, had they run that drill, everything would have gone so much more smoothly that night. But I don't need to be talking about that lifeboat drill when it's Saturday or Friday in the story. We don't need to talk about that till it's Sunday afternoon. And so it's a piece of information that's vital, but I can hold that. And because that's not going to get discussed until Sunday afternoon on the ship, there's things that I can pull forward earlier that uh, then will become important later. And, and so it's just a matter of not saying anything more than what needs to be said for the scene that's happening now. Okay. Uh, because I would feel like I would need to throw everything out there, like the rivets and the bolts, <laughs> you know, like all of those facts. And you don't always need all of them. Kind of going with that too, and you mentioned research, how important that is. What was your process of building the Titanic world on your in your novel? Uh, it was threefold. Uh, the first part of it is I have a book from 1912 called The Sinking of the Titanic. 
So it's written the year the Titanic went down. That was absolutely vital for me to understand the way that people were thinking about it then and, and the culture of the time, right? So the, the fact that, you know, certain prominent first class people went down, that was really considered a great tragedy and a great loss in a way that we don't think, we wouldn't think about it in our modern day time of, oh, what a shame, you know, the rich guy died, right? But back then that really was considered a, a great loss. And so I needed to respect that culturally, but see if that's all I do, I won't write a scientifically accurate story. So I was using a lot of modern resources um, that have studied, you know, have had a hundred years to study went wrong, what went wrong. And so I was pulling a lot from modern sources as well. And then third, I was using a lot of um, visual references because there's uh, like on YouTube, there's a time lapse of real time sinking of the Titanic. And so you can watch it and you can see at this exact minute, this is where the Titanic would have been in the water. This is the message that they are sending out at this exact minute. And that was really helpful to gauge a very accurate two hours and 40 minutes of tragedy. A lot of great resources there too, to have the 1812. Yeah, to have the book. Oh, and then I got the deck plans uh, for the ship. And like the detailed deck plans. And I put them up on the wall of my office, like every deck. So, and then I marked every every route that you could take from each deck, every route you could take to get up to the boat deck and where you would find a Bostwick gate, where they might've had gates that could have locked and where you had a clear stairway uh, up. And I marked all of those. I marked where all of the rooms were for any passengers that I might have mentioned, so that I always was tracking. Uh, if I say there's a stairway right here on E deck, that's the right stairway you could have taken to get up. It had to be that accurate because, sure enough, there's going to be a middle grade student who's going to say, Mrs. Nielsen, that's a Bostwick gate, and you have no credibility at all. So I yeah. had to get that correct. Looking along of credibility, if an opportunity arose for Hazel to investigate her questions, she took it consistently. Even after just having a conversation with her friend Sylvia about how it was impeding on her relationships, a moment later, she's like, well, this door is open and I'm going to go through it to get um, an answer for my question. So I would love to know what advice would you offer writers to keep characterization consistent? Because in my mind, too, I think that that helps the reader feel that the writer is credible. They can believe in the writer moving forward because there's consistency there. I, I think as writers, it's important for us to understand personality, just basic rules of how personality functions. And so, for example, personality is consistent, right? Mood might change, but even in different moods, we are still consistent in personality. And so, we can't write somebody who is going to radically change. You know, that that super shy girl is not going to get up and sing center stage unless you give her a proper motive. And it's just not going to happen. And that's how we maintain our credibility as far as characters are concerned. But also, um, what another rule of personality is that whatever is our greatest strength is likely also our greatest weakness. And, and the two of them, it's, it's two sides of a coin. 
And so Hazel, one of her great strengths is her curiosity. But see, if that's going to be something that's great about her, it also has to be something that's deeply flawed about her. And so Sylvia has had this conversation. You keep asking questions and it's making it so we cannot even be friends. And Hazel knows this, right? She knows it's getting in the way. But at the end of the day, that curiosity is still her flaw as well. And so she's going to give into it. And that makes Hazel not only consistent as a character, it also makes her real. Because as much as we cheer her on for when it works for Hazel to be curious, it also sometimes uh, happens at her deficit. And, and so when I create a character with any very strong dominating trait, I know that that same dominating trait has got to come up in the story to the character's detriment. And that's how we keep consistency. I really like that connection with the strength and the weakness being so tied together. Thank you. So can you talk about your first chapter and if there was another effect or purpose you had in crafting um, in addition to convincing your potential reader to continue on to chapter two? So maybe in your tone or anticipation or foreshadowing. Yeah, the, the first chapter is very different in, in style from the rest. And it's Hazel talking about you know, the, it, what would happen at the very end in those very final moments. And, uh, and at the end, you know, when she's talking about in the end, there will be people like who are not going to survive. And she knows how awful those last minutes will be because she was one of them trying to survive. And I put that at the beginning because part of it is to let the reader know up front, people will die in this story. Like there's no way you can write about the Titanic and we all sail off to, you know, in the sunrise, you know, sunset. And so I needed to be very clear that that's the kind of story you're going to get with it. But also there's something that I want readers to know about me before they read a book. And it's simply that I am an author who is willing to be cruel to her characters. And I am an author who is willing to kill off characters. And see, as soon as you know that about me, it raises the suspense because you realize I, I am willing to take out even major characters. And now you're going to worry, which, of course, it becomes a great page turner. And so, if, for example, if you thought, oh, Jennifer Nielsen, she never does anything cruel to her characters, I don't have to worry. So I make it very clear from the outset, oh, no, go ahead and worry because... Mm -hmm. Uh, it's it's going to be very, very uh, tense at, at those final minutes of the ship sinking. I wanted to bring our attention to two lines in chapter 15. I sat on a deck chair against the wall, pausing long enough to record the number of lifeboats into my notebook. It seemed like an important detail to include for my future readers. And for me, that actually had quite an impact those two sentences, mm. because in this one moment, Hazel is simultaneously wondering about something terrible happening, right? She's questioning about icebergs. She's questioning about the lifeboats, but then is also planning for her future. I felt these lines really showcase both the plot and characterization that we've been talking about already, working together to give the reader an unsettled feeling. That's how I felt unsettled in that moment. Did this moment come out of the writing process naturally, or was that 
somewhere where you spent a lot of time revisions? And if so, what advice would you offer for creating those moments where both the characterization of Hazel and the plot are working together to have an impact on the reader? Yeah, what a, what a great question. It's a decision I made early on. And one of the things that I think Hazel is experiencing is a sort of uh, personal isolation because the more she learns, the more she's realizing there are flaws. And yet I didn't want her to be this doom and gloom sort of girl who's just running around. The ship is going down. The ship is going down. But the more she learns, the more she is realizing there are problems here. And yet she is surrounded by people who believe to their core this ship cannot sink. And I think that's a very real sort of uh, emotion that many of us have felt at times. Like, what if you are the only one who believes something is wrong? What do you do? And do you say something? Do you uh, do you stand out? And so what Hazel is trying to do is to navigate her own feelings of unease. And yet um, also there's the reality of saying, but something must be wrong with me because nobody else sees this, nobody else feels this. And so my hope is for the reader to be able to connect to uh, Hazel in that moment and say, I've been there. I've been there in the moment when I know something is not right. And yet I'm the only one who believes it. So is am I the only one who's right? Or am I the only one who's wrong? And so it, that was a choice I made early on that Hazel was going to have to deal with that emotion. And that's what you see when she's sitting in the deck chair is she's counting those lifeboats and doing the math and trying to work out, am I, you know, what do I do with the information I have if I'm the only one who sees it? Do you keep asking your questions? <laughs> keep asking your yeah. questions. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, and yeah, you keep asking and which she does, of course, and just ends up irritating nearly everybody who comes into contact with her. But I also love that about Hazel, that mm -hmm. she is willing to keep prodding and pushing because the answers to the questions matter to her. And I love that trait in her. Well, as a former science teacher, I incorporate a lot of scientific principles in my own writing. And I loved the addition of the photograph demonstrating refraction. Loved it. Can you talk about what you think the role of science is in historical fiction genre as a whole, and then specifically iceberg novel? I think we have to be re uh, responsive in any sort of writing that we do to what is the overall events that are happening. And sometimes that delves into, you know, scientific realm, in which case we've got to find a way to explain that. And to me, the idea of, a, of, of understanding what refraction is and the role it could have played was so significant that there's no way it could have been overlooked because clearly that mattered on the night they hit the iceberg. It had to have had an impact. And yet it's the kind of thing that Many of us, we, we, we see it. We've all reached for something that's in the water and our hand is missed, but we don't have a name for it or we don't have a clear understanding of why it happens the way it happens. So it was a wonderful place to add in this scientific information um, that, that I just thought was so fascinating. But at the same time, you know, a different historical novel, it might, it might lend itself to understanding, you know, some 
architectural principles, to understand, uh, you know, some mechanics of things, to understand, you know, mathematics or engineering. And when we can weave those in, it becomes so powerful because if we can use uh, one academic area to enhance education in another academic area, it's like a rising tide. And so you get a, a kid who loves reading, who now is a little bit more invested in science. And that is nothing but a win-win. So when I can incorporate, you know, outside information, I'm always going to reach for it because it just expands uh, education in general. I agree. And, you know, the flip side too, a student who's into science, who's not really as into reading, they can start seeing, or history, then they can start seeing connections in different places. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely well, agree. Especially for kids who don't think that they love history, if we can present history to them in story form, they will go out and do the research themselves. And oh, you know, yeah. where a history teacher may not be able to force information into their minds, if if they like Hazel and Charlie and Sylvia, they're going to go out and research more about the Titanic on their own. They will teach themselves if we give them compelling stories. Definitely. So continuing with the discussion of the refraction photograph, why did you decide to add newspaper clippings and photographs, et cetera, in this novel? And how do you know as a writer which story benefits from these editions and which which of those more uh, informational pieces to add into your novel? Yeah, you know, every, every time I write a historical novel, I, I try to look at it as what can I do that makes it a little bit different or makes it kind of stand out from, from other works that I have done? And with the Titanic, there's so many visuals that are really amazing to see. It's a really cool thing to see what a, um, a telegram, like a, a Morse code message might have looked like. And, and how that might have been posted and come across. It's really, it, it's very helpful not to just have refraction explained, but to be able to look at a picture and see see it for yourself. I mean, that's the, the picture's worth a thousand words is very, very much true. And so for this book, it happened to be that. For a different book, I might I might do things in a different way, but I'm always trying to think of different ways to make the story accessible and more interesting for young readers and, and more interesting for me to uh, say, hey, I've done this a little bit different and this was a fun way to change it up. In our book club, when we were reading this, that was one of the first comments was, I really love these newspaper clippings. Like it's just a, the visually is so fun to look at on the page too. So. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And, and it just gives, it adds in a lot of history that I couldn't add Mm -hmm. myself that, uh, you know, Hazel might not have access to that, but if you can look and, and see the visual, it's a way of saying this was happening now, even if Hazel wouldn't have known it. You know, the, the menu, I think is the one that, that one of the menus uh, mm -hmm. that showed the different classes meals was just such a great way. Like you said, a picture is worth a thousand words. Like to know their food difference yeah, is so much harder to explain. Like you said, kids may not understand this whole class separation, but food we understand. And yeah, I really yeah. liked, really liked that. Al one. 
Although, you know, I, it, one of the things in research that surprised me is like for the third class, even though it's so much less than what they're receiving in first class, still, that was, those were great meals. I mean, they got fruit <laughs> every day and fresh baked mm -hmm. bread. And I mean, many third class uh, ships didn't feed third class passengers at all. And here they're getting fresh food every single day and, and they have running water in their cabins. I mean, for many of them, this was a huge step up from the living conditions that they were had left and that they were going to, that mm -hmm, it was mm -hmm. still better than what they had lived in, which I, I had no idea about that. Yeah, that's a good point. So going on with class, uh, one theme threaded throughout Iceberg was the fluidity between the classes, Hazel physically moving between the three separate floors, but also inherits wealth versus rigidity between classes, separate floors, the gates, clothing, dining menus. What about this theme captured your imagination and what relevance does it have for today's middle grade reader? I think we have a hard time in our modern day really fully understanding the difference in how classes were treated and thought about. Uh, so for example, one of the... A lot of people, you know, think that the reason that so many third class passengers didn't get on the lifeboats is because they were uh, physically blocked from getting there. And, you know, that's a James Cameron sort of a, a construct for the movie. But really, mm -hmm. one of the biggest problems was uh, in the first place, many third class passengers didn't speak English. And so they couldn't read the signs that would tell them where to go. But also there was so much respect for class. Even when the ship is sinking, it didn't occur to many people in third class to go upstairs because they're like, the, the sign says third class stop here. And even when the ship is sinking, their respect for that uh, remained in place. And that to us today is so hard to understand because it, it we wouldn't, we wouldn't necessarily think that same way. But at the same time, then, I think we also kind of have this idea of the first class just settling in on those lifeboats at the expense of women and children. And you take Jonathan Jacob Astor, uh, Astor who is the wealthiest man on the ship, one of the wealth wealthiest men in the world and famous for his wealth. And he gets his wife on the lifeboat because she's pregnant and she's begging him to come. And he lies to her and he says, I'll be on the next lifeboat. You get on this one. I'll be on the next one. And he knows it's a lie because he stands back and makes sure that women, even women and children from third class, he safeguarded them getting on that lifeboat, knowing the whole time he would not uh, take their place. And he went down with the ship despite being the most famous person in first class. And I love what he did. Because he was someone who said, my class does not make my life more valuable. And what a rare, great person he was. And so I really wanted readers to understand what class was and then what it was to be a classy person, which is an entirely different thing. Well, he has some heartbreaking moments there towards the end. You know, it's going to make me cry. Oh, it, there's, it's, it's, it's tough. It is tough. It's, it's tough history to think about. And, you know, a, there's one character that a lot of kids care about, 
who doesn't make it. And, and they'll ask like, why, why couldn't this character make it? And I just have to explain that this character, what they did in their closing moments is consistent with who they are. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I love this character for the choices that they made in those closing moments, but it's hard to read about because you do care about them. Absolutely. Additionally, Iceberg focused on the ideas of sacrifice and bride. You were just talking about that with Aster. Mm-hmm. This feeling that you are unsinkable versus putting your own life at risk to save others. Can you discuss the ways or additional ways? I know you were just speaking of a few of them with Aster. You tried to express those ideas in your novel? I think it's a function of... You know, when we're young, and and I remember when I was young and I believed I was the unsinkable, right? <laughs> that that nothing could ever go wrong and nothing could ever touch me, and I would just be on top of the world. And um, and I think that's that's not an uncommon sort of a, a philosophy. And I think sometimes we are confronted with the reality of there are really hard things that are going to happen to us in life. And, and it's a common theme you'll see in many of my novels, the uh, idea of self-sacrifice, that I will take the hit for you. And it's because it's just a value that, that I hold really dear, that, that sometimes if we are the strong one in a situation, that we recognize that this is our opportunity to become a hero, which means I recognize that because I'm strong, I can take hits that that will hurt, but I'm going to do it because I don't think you can take the same hits and, and get through them. And so you'll see that theme over and over again in my writing. And one of my favorite things is when I get feedback from readers that say, uh, because I read your book, it taught me to have the courage to stand up to a bully that was bullying my friend. And that is just such a profound moment for me that um, the student, that young person, like walked away with that message and then took the hit for somebody because they know they could and their friend might not be able to. So yeah, I put in those those things. Yeah, yeah, that is powerful. Again, you are going to make me cry by the end of this. I just... mm. (laughs) It's so good, though. It's so good for kids. This is why I love middle school, too. Uh, Middle grade books and middle grade kids. So our Read to Write Kid Lit is all about growth. So what did you learn from writing Iceberg? And what craft lesson will you take with you into your next book? For writing Iceberg, because there's so much information about the Titanic, because there are titaniacs out there who spend their life counting rivets, and um, and there's so much knowledge and information, uh, this project really required me to learn how to dive deeper, no pun intended, to really research information so that I could find things that were unique to this book. And so it taught me a lot about research skills and about really becoming more curious, learning more information um, than, than was just available 
uh, up front. And the second thing I learned is that anytime there's a lot of information available, there will also be a lot of misinformation available. And so I learned a lot about sorting between myth, uh, what's been inspired by movies and uh, popular visuals, and really getting down to just facts and information. And, and so that was a very humbling experience to uh, recognize that I had bitten off a lot more than I thought <laughs> when I uh, decided to do this project. So there's some parallels then between you and Hazel. Asking questions, uh, asking questions, keep asking your questions. Honestly, that's I that's that's the message of the book to mm -hmm. any young reader, right? Is or, or any young writer, ask questions, yeah. ask questions, and be the person who stays curious. Yeah, I love that. Well, speaking of what's next, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on or if you have another book coming out sometime soon? So in uh, March 2024, I will release Uprising, which I am very, very excited about. It tells the true story of a girl named Lydia Durr. Lydia lived in Poland, and, and she was meant to be one of the greatest piano players in the world. People would come from all over Warsaw, even at age 12, to hear her play. And then the Nazis invaded, and it changed the whole trajectory of her life. Lydia's father had been an officer in World War I. He went off to help fight in World War II, and so he's gone. Lydia's older brother joins the resistance, and when Lydia asks about it, he says, there is no resistance, and don't you dare join. And so, of course, when Lydia joins the resistance and her brother asks about it, she says, there is no resistance. Uh, as an older woman, Lydia counted up the number of times she should have died in the 1944 Warsaw City Uprising or any of the years prior to that. She lost track at, a, at 70 times is when she loses count. Um, she was a phenomenal woman. And uh, she always wanted her story told, but she was trying to tell it in English, her second language. And so it was never publishable. So to be able to tell her story and give her the recognition that uh, she uh, deserves and to tell about the 1944 Warsaw City uprising, which made Hitler so angry, he said, flatten the city. I cannot wait to share this story of what these, uh, these young Polish resistance fighters tried to do. Well, we cannot wait to read it. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> Is this your... <laughs> Your first book um, with like a real person main character, like a person from history. So um, that's fully a real person. Absolutely. Yes. And it's still, it's not nonfiction. It's still fiction. There's right, some scenes right. that, you know, but uh, no, it is the first one. Um, Resistance, which is the 1943 Warsaw mm -hmm. Ghetto Uprising, was definitely based very heavily on real people. Okay. But in this case, this is Lydia's story and her family's oh, cool. story. And it is remarkable. Very cool. Thank you, Jennifer, for being here today. We greatly enjoy talking with you. And if you are an aspiring middle grade writer and would like to join our book club, please find us on our Substack linked below. Thank you for listening. Join our community on Substack linked below. 